Turn with me today to Hosea chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13. And we come to uh, the final chapters of the book of Hosea. Uh, we have just a couple more weeks after this week left in it. And so Hosea 13, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter today. And as you get there, you know, if God were to bless you with everything, uh, this afternoon you went home and everything that you ever wanted was there on your doorstep, how do you think that would change your relationship with God? You probably would say something like, well, of course, my relationship with God would be strengthened, right? I would be ever thankful for the good gifts that God has given me. And that's how I would live the rest of my life in, in thankfulness to God for his good gifts. And that may be the case, but perhaps also the case might be that you would start out very thankful, but quickly devolve into thinking that the good gifts that you have are not gifts, but yours by right. It's about your greatness. Why do you have this? Because you're great. Uh, why do you have this? Because I am worth these blessings. And maybe you would start thinking of ways to get more. Maybe, maybe you would start to even think of uh, less than pure means to get what you wanted. It's hard to judge our future actions uh, because we don't really know how we'll process a situation, right? Um, but this we ought know. Sin corrupts always. So if there's one thing we can be certain of when it comes to our human nature, that we will tend towards corruption. And what we do know as we come to our passage today, we come to a people that had taken the blessings of God and attributed it to other things, uh, to themselves, to other gods, false gods, and really anything but the Lord God. And so today I want us to see in our passage that to misidentify the source of our blessings leads to great sin and thus great judgment. To misidentify the source of our blessings leads to great sin and thus great judgment. So let us go to the scripture and read Hosea chapter 13. And this is God's word. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion.' 
as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise child. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. <coughs> I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she had rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. And this is the word of the Lord. So let's recall a little bit of our Israelite history here, right? Who were the people of Israel before they came into the land of Canaan, the, the promised land? Right? Who were they? Nobody, right? They were nobody. They were slaves in Egypt. How did they leave their bonds of slavery behind? Right? God rescued them. God redeemed them out of the hands of the Egyptian. By many uh, great and mighty, powerful acts, God delivered his people. And he led them. And everywhere he led them, they stood firm. But they got comfortable. Uh, they stalled in their offensive in taking the promised land. They erred. And God delivered them into the hands of their enemies until they called out to him in repentance. Right? And that's the cycle of the book of Judges. Uh, they, they get comfortable. They sin. God delivers them to their enemies. And then... They finally cry out in repentance and God sends a judge to deliver them from their enemies and then they get comfortable and right and it's a downward spiral spiral in the book of Judges. Uh, eventually they have prophets and then they demand a king, right? They they want a king and God gave them a king like they wanted. He was handsome and tall and everything like all the other nations had, just like they wanted. And then God gave them a king after his own heart, someone who was uh, like unto him, right, in, in following after him. And then he promised a king to come who would reign and rule forever on his father's throne. And before that happens, in the interim, we have the split of the kingdom, right? The northern tribes of the people of Israel split into a separate kingdom. They, they go off and they call themselves Israel. And then we have the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom wanders off in apostasy, right, in, in false Belief, false worship, worship of false gods, right from the get-go, right from the start. This is how they begin uh, the new kingdom. They take the blessings of God and attribute them to their own designs and schemes and to false gods. And so the book of Hosea, right? Hosea's ministry is one of calling the people to repentance, calling the people to turn from their sins and to return to God. God has been warning the people about what is going to come because of their hardened hearts, their unwillingness to repent. And today, as we come to Hosea 13, we come to the last of the accusations and complaints against the people. Uh, right. So we only have 
two chapters left, this, this one in chapter 14. And chapter 14 takes a very different uh, a very different tact than what we see here in chapter 13. So here we have uh, an oracle of judgment, an oracle of doom, an oracle of woe. And so let us get into it. And we'll see first a vain craftsman, a vain craftsman in verses 1 through 3. And so when Ephraim spoke, and as we stop here, Ephraim is one of the tribes of the people of Israel. And as we've gone through the book of Hosea, sometimes Ephraim stands in for the whole of the 10 northern tribes. So when we see that word Ephraim, what we're really talking about is the kingdom of Israel. And the reason for that is Ephraim is the greatest of the 10 tribes. Uh, They are Uh, great in number and great in power and everyone looks to them and that's actually what we see here in this in this verse and so we're not talking about the whole kingdom here we're talking about just this one tribe when Ephraim spoke there was trembling and so this indicates something of the the strength and the power and the the prestige of this one tribe Ephraim when they spoke there was trembling people were fearful The other tribes paid attention. If Ephraim said, that's ours now, right? Everyone was like, okay, it's yours, right? They're like the big bully in the school. They get what they want. And they, they were trembled. Even the foreign nations, right? Other kingdoms trembled at the speech of Ephraim. He was exalted in Israel, right? He was glorified. He was, he had glory but, right, the scripture says, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. So once he was glorious, now he's dead. And let's just ask the question, how much glory does a dead thing have? Not much. Right, so so there was a case when when. They spoke that there was trembling, but now there is no speech and there is no trembling because they had bowed the knee to the false gods. They had worshipped and served this false god. They lost their strength. It's not unlike when Samson's hair was cut. The power of God departed from Samson. And so too this tribe, this once mighty and great tribe is now shriveled and receding. And you would think that would cause you to change your ways, but not so for the people of Ephraim, the people of Israel. Look at verse 2, and now they sin more and more. Their degradation, their their diminishing, they made them only root themselves and their sin deeper. They now sin more and more. And this indictment is not just about this one tribe, Ephraim, but it's representative of the whole of the northern kingdom, right? As, As they begin to slide into destruction as as God's word against them comes true it doesn't cause them to amend their ways to repent to turn back to God instead all it does is root them deeper into their sin they say you know what we need you know what would make Israel great again we need more shrines We need more places of false worship. We need more sacrifices to Baal. They sin more and more. They they spend their days 
making false gods, right? Idols, they make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. We could look at Isaiah 44, and that's something you can look up later. Isaiah 44, and you can see the foolishness of image worship. There, God say, saying through the prophet Isaiah says, here comes one who cuts down a tree to carve it into a God, to worship it. And with half the tree, he does that. And the other half, he uses it to warm himself and bake bread. Does that make sense? If the tree was sacred, how could you use any of it for profane purposes? And yet this is what the idol maker does. This is what the people of Israel do. Greater foolishness. What, what greater foolishness? Will, will the Israelites be delivered because of their idols? No, they sin more and more. As an aside from Isaiah 44, verse 18, Isaiah 44, 18, why is it, why is it that they follow after that foolishness? They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. God has given them over to their sin. So these vain things are what the craftsmen make. The, the Israelites think that it will save them from the Assyrian uh, invasion, from famine, from drought, but it's not. Now the last part of verse 2 here, the ESV translates it. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. And, and we have some difficulty here in the Hebrew. Uh, human sacrifice is certainly the height of sin in a pagan worship. Right, so, so it's something we do see in the scripture happens on occasion. So uh, people are, are offered as sacrifice, especially children under, say, the god Molech. Uh, they are offered uh, as human sacrifice. God ab abhors it. However, the ESV probably has this verse wrong in the translation. Uh, I think they go too far. And the reason for that is this. Uh, if... Hosea was actually addressing the issue of uh, human sacrifice, we, th we would think he would make a bigger deal of it because human sacrifice is really the height of sin. And so for him to just make this kind of passing reference to it um, seems like it's, uh, it's missing, right? It seems like it wouldn't be what he would do. So it's probably better to follow other translations here. Uh, for instance, the New American Standard or the King James Version reads something like, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. And that's probably the meaning here. Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. And so what, what's that about? Uh, why would you kiss the calf? And the calf here is not a living calf. It's an idol. It's an image. And it's an act of worship. Uh, what still happens sometimes uh, it's a common practice then, but even still what happens sometimes today is we kiss idols, kiss images as an act of worship, as an act of devotion, or as an act of piety. And understand that still happens. Uh, and I dare say it probably still happens even in some places called Christian churches, right? That we kiss uh, false images. But here we have, again, so they sin more and more. And so what is the response? What is... What will God do with these 
calf kissers. Look at verse 3. We, we get these images here. Therefore, right, those shall be like the morning mist, right? Like fog, like dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, if you, or if you mowed in the last week, uh, as all the dust of the grass comes up and then suddenly it's gone. Uh, or like smoke from a window. And this is probably something in relation to uh, a lattice or some kind of opening that would have been near the, the stove inside of a house. So some kind of vent. Uh, not quite a chimney like we have chimneys, but something similar to that. Something to draw the smoke out. And what's the point in all this? What's the point? With, what will God do with these who sacrifice and worship divine images? Right? They'll be like the images. Nothing. They're going to vanish. They're, they're going to be utterly destroyed. Right? They have taken the blessings that God has given them. And understand, that's quite literally what they do. Now go back up to verse 2. Right, They take for themselves silver and skillfully make it into idols. Right? We can think of what they do uh, at the bottom of Mount Sinai in the Exodus, right? They take the, the gold that was given to them by the Egyptians that they plundered from the Egyptians as they left, and they throw it in the fire to make for themselves a, a graven image, an image of a calf, right? They take God's blessings and twist them for their own sinful purposes. And I would just ask uh, for you to consider for a moment here, what about you? Do you twist the good things of God for your own selfish ends? Be warned about God, what God will do. He may make the things that you've grown to love be not more than morning mist. So we have a vain craftsman. Now let's look at a fat heifer. A fat heifer in verses 4 to 8. God says, but I am the Lord, your God from the land of Egypt. You know, no God, but me. And besides me, there is no savior, right? Fundamental to the identity of the people of Israel was the Exodus, right? So, so everything that happens after the book of Exodus it is impacted by what happens in the book of Exodus, Right? Do we get that? that? So that just like sets the whole trajectory of who they are as a people, as a nation. It's central to who they were and how they were. How were they the people of Israel? Because of the Exodus. And here God reminds them of what he said in the Exodus, right? When he gives them the Ten Commandments. Listen, this is where Hosea is pulling this from, where God is pulling this from. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Exodus chapter 22 and 3, the Ten Commandments, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? That's fundamental to who they were. Why did God give them the commandments? Why did God make a covenant with them? He said, I rescued you. I saved you. I redeemed you. I am exercising my divine right to call a people. And he purposed and he carried out his plan. And for this kindness, for this steadfast love that he showed them, they were to be 
wholly his. They were to have no other God. There is no other God, right? But they were to have no other God. And notice the the small change here we have in the book of Hosea. But I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. It's not you have no God but me, but you know no God but me. And that's important. They were to know no other God. And this word know is sometimes used in the scripture to, to indicate relational intimacy or sexual intimacy. And in Hosea, we have the theme developed from the very beginning, right? That God is husband and the people are our wife. And that there should be an intimacy between husband and wife. That there should be a deep relational intimacy between God and his people. Continue on in verse 5. It was I who knew you. Or better there, probably cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. How did God care for the people in the wilderness? He led them. He protected them. He fed them. He gave them water. He gave them meat. (coughs) But when they had grazed, verse 6, when they had grazed or, or when they had their pasture land, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. They became proud. They thought that they had won the spoils that they had. They thought that theirs was the wisdom and strength and riches. They forgot the Lord God and that charge there that they forgot me. That's something that we see throughout the book of Hosea. It's a charge made throughout the book of Hosea. You look at chapters 2, 4, 7, and 8. 2, 4, 7, and 8. <coughs> and the language in this verse links us back to the book of Deuteronomy. So, so listen to this out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 20. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 20. And, and Moses is speaking to the people of Israel, and he wants them to know, and he wants them to be warned about what what will happen when they get into the promised land. Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with his fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. (coughs) Who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. 
And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Well, let's just pause here and say, did the people of Israel really need Hosea's ministry, the ministry of Hosea, to know what God had said and what God would do? No, they didn't. They had Moses. They had the book of Deuteronomy. And indeed, as you go through the book of Hosea, if you look at cross-references, all you see is cross-references back to the book of Deuteronomy. Because Hosea is not coming up with something new here. God's not like, you know what, let's pivot and let's come up with something new and let's, let's try something different. No, God's purpose has remained the same from the very beginning and the people of Israel should know. And let me just say it's the grace of God, perhaps, that God continues to speak to his people, continues to warn them, and calls them back to him. And God says here, right? When they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. They didn't listen to Moses because Moses said, take care. Don't forget. Beware the pride that will make you think I have won this wealth for myself with my own strength. Be warned that you will perish. And so what does God say to them in verses 7 and 8? So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. God promises through the prophet Hosea, they will perish. And, and what God describes here, right? This is kind of a, a shocking image for God to speak to his people. He's going to be brutally destructive towards them. I know we uh, are a little removed from the animal kingdom, and so we don't always understand the dangers that are present out there, especially in a place like Israel in the desert wilderness where you had things like lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, right? But if you've ever watched movies like The Revenant or, or watched TV shows that uh, track lions and leopards as they hunt, or if you've ever even played some video games that include these kinds of things, you can get a sense for how terrifying it would be to be out in the woods and all of a sudden you hear the roaring of a bear, a mama bear, who's been bereaved of her cubs. Not off in the distance, right? Not hearing it like, oh, is that a bear out there somewhere? No, right behind you, there's a bear on its back legs with its claws getting ready to come down upon you. That is where the people of Israel are at. God's not messing around. He's serious. And this shocking description is meant to awaken them to this reality. God uses this strong language to wake them up. They had their good times and forgot God. 
but God did not forget them or his promise to curse them for their sin. And it's here that we all pause and consider ourselves. Do we forget God in the good times? It's easy to do so, right? It's easy when circumstances are good to treat God as a kind of nice add-on, right? A, a convenience. Uh, we'll pray when we think about it and have a moment. Uh, we'll read our Bibles when we've exhausted the entertainment of YouTube. We'll go to church when the, the, the skies are cloudy uh, and the Bengals are playing an away game. Yet how quick we are to run to God when the situation changes. When circumstances are difficult, we suddenly find prayer a more important priority. Isn't that interesting? Right? When, when we are in a deep, difficult, dark situation, Bible reading suddenly doesn't take a backseat. Uh, we pick it up first rather than other things. And church becomes a necessity when the world is bleak and pressing upon us. Why is this the case? Because we have fickle hearts. Because of pride and sin. How we need to heed the words of Moses ourselves. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, God's goodness the goodness of God towards you, the good circumstances you may find yourself in. And listen, if that's you, hear this. God's good circumstances in your life should draw you to him. Even as much as the dark circumstances, the fallenness of this world pushes you to him. Listen, I know I need to repent of this. And how often God is gracious to give me thorny circumstances that I may rely on him. Well, we've had our vain craftsman and a fat heifer. Let's see next a missing king, a missing king in verses 9 through 11. God continues and it says, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me. And the variety of the, the translations speaks to how difficult the Hebrew is here. And I know I say, I've say i said that a lot in the book of Hosea, but Hosea is one of the most difficult books of Hebrew that we have, uh, second perhaps to only to the book of Job. The sense of this verse seems to be, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. The sense of this verse seems to be, the people of Israel are brought to an end by the wrath of God because God alone was their help. Why are they destroyed? Because their help has determined to destroy them. He is the one who saved them. We see that verse 4. And he is the one who cared for them. We see that verse 5. And all that they had done, all that they had proven, all that they had sought after <coughs> was to their own destruction. In abandoning God's covenant, they abandoned God's life, right? The life that God would give them. And so God asked in verse 10, where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Right? To prove this point further, he asked of their king. And remember, they said they wanted a king so they could be like all the other nations. Uh, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 
1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. 1 Samuel 8, verse 19 says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's why we want a king, to fight our battles. Where's your king? Who was the Israelites' help? Was it their king? No, it was the God that they had abandoned. And so God, God did give them a king in verse 11. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. And this is probably in reference to King Saul. This is probably a reference back to King Saul. But it also works for the present time. It's possible that by this time where, where Hosea is preaching this, it's possible by this time that the last king of Israel has already been carted off by the Assyrians into captivity. Second uh, Kings seventeen four gives us that. Second Kings seventeen four. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So will their king help them in all their cities? Where's your king? Oh, yeah, that's right. He's in prison in Assyria. I hope he's a big help to you as war comes and ravages the land. The king's not going to help him. He's a missing king. And we'll see next in verses 12 and 13, a stubborn child, a stubborn child. Verses 12 and 13. God presses them further. Verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up or locked up. His sin is kept in store or his sin is hidden. And the meaning of this verse uh, is something like this, that, that all the sin that they have committed is stored up as in a treasury ready to be brought out. We might think of this verse like a dragon horde. There's a dragon horde full of sin being kept, being stored. Till when? Well, till the time of punishment, till the time of recompense. And let us remember here, let us realize this here. God has been exceedingly merciful to these people. They had gone on sinning for years and years. For years, the people have gone astray. For years and years, they have sinned more and more. But God's patience ends when it comes to sin. The patience of God has a terminating point. And we might say the same today. God is patient, not wanting that any should perish. He is merciful, and he has not yet burned this world with its sin to the ground. He is long-suffering towards you, friend. And as you yet draw breath, that is testament. Right? God is giving you another day to repent and trust in Christ. But understand this. This world will end. This creation will be purged with fire. And you, friend, will die and stand before the Lord God, the Holy One. And God will give you your wages, what it is you have earned. Death. Second death. The fires of the lake that can never be quenched. Hell. And let me speak more plainly. Unless you trust in Christ Jesus as your Lord, unless you follow after him in faith, all of the evil, 
the wrongs, the lies, the stealing, the lust, the disobedience, and every other sin will only lead to your everlasting punishment. God is holy and just. His character demands that sin be dealt with and his wrath will be satisfied in you. But there is one who bore the wrath of God for his people. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ Jesus went to the cross as a perfect, holy sacrifice to deal with sin forever. And so for you, what remains is what the scripture says in Romans 10, 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. That's the promise of the scriptures. So confess and believe this day and be saved. Be forgiven of your sins. As it was for the people of Israel, their sins had been stored up until, verse 13, the pangs of childbirth come for him. And God here uses a metaphor of a child being born, but a child being born, breach. And remember that this is a time before medical intervention, surgical intervention. They couldn't just go and have a C-section and deliver the child and mother and child be fine. What would happen if a child was being born, breached during this time? The child wouldn't be born. And then the mother would die. And then the child would die. It was a situation which would be tragic, devastating. And what God says of the people of Israel is, well, this is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Labor's here, but the child doesn't turn. Labor's here, but this this son says, you know what, I actually kind of like it in here. I don't want to come into the world. I don't want to be born. I'm too busy. It's good in here. Foolish child. He kills himself and he kills the mother, his mother as well. The Israelites should be wise. And what is God saying this? The Israelites should be wise. They should be able to read the times. They should be able to know what is happening and why it is. Uh, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, you know how to read the, the skies. You ask for a sign and, and yet you see, you can look at the, the skies and you see and you know that, well, tomorrow it's going to rain or not. And yet you can't read the sign of the times. You, no sign is going to be given you except the sign of Jonah. And interesting, right? That, that comes in Matthew 16, by the way, Matthew 16. Interestingly, you get to Matthew 28, the sign of Jonah happens. Christ is raised from the grave. And what do the scribes and the Pharisees do? Well, they gather the guards and say, guards, we want you to lie. We want you to say that the disciples came and stole his body. And we, you know, we were uh, hoodwinked, done over. We fell asleep, whatever it is you have to say. And don't worry if it goes to the governor and he says, well, we're going to kill you for your lapse of uh, of faithfulness and guarding, uh, don't worry, we'll deal with him too. They had the sign that they, God had given to them and they ignored it. More than that, right? They had the proofs of the miracles of Christ Jesus. 
But the point is this, right? The people should have known. The people of Israel during Hosea's time should have known what was going on. And yet they miss it. The people should have known why they were in the situation they were in, but they miss it. They were unwise child. And so they'll suffer a compassionless death. And let's look at that lastly in verse Uh, Not lastly, verse 14, a compassionless death. And this verse may sound familiar to you, right? I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. That may sound familiar in part if you've ever read 1 Corinthians 15, uh, where Paul talks about, uh, Paul uses this to say, Death has a sting. Death has a victory. And yet, where is it? Because our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, saves us from these things. He suffered death to defeat death. And in his defeat of death, we ourselves who believe in Christ have defeated death. Right? First Corinthians 15, if you wanted to look into that. And the point there. And the point here is this. God is master over death. God is master over the grave, over Sheol. Our master reigns. Now, we do have to deal with some difficulty with verse 14. Uh, And the first is this. Are the first two phrases, which is, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, I shall redeem them from death, are those... Declarative statements are all of those questions. Depending on your translation, you may have had those as questions or you may have had those as statements. Depending on your version of the ESV, you may have those as questions versus statements. Older versions of the ESV have them as questions. So what's the point there, right? In Hebrew, we don't have question marks. So it's not like English. We don't know. We have to tell from the context if it's a statement or a question. And so we have, we have to deal with this. The second actually helps us answer the first is, well, is verse 14 an oracle of doom or an oracle of salvation? In other words, is this a statement speaking of the doom of the people, the judgment of the people, or of their salvation? Right? So if we, or to say it more simply, should we take this verse in a positive way or in a negative way? Right? Is this positive for the people or negative for the people? If positive, we get these wonderful declarations, right? So positive is the declaration, I shall ransom them, right? I shall redeem them. And to ask, oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, shield, where is your sting? That's to say, <coughs> you know, what, what, what can they do for you? What can they do against you? <clears throat> if negative, we, we use the questions uh, where God says, will I ransom them from death? Uh, sh- shall I redeem them from death? And that question of where are your plagues, that could be a question of, you know, death, where are you at? You're supposed to be bringing your plagues right now. Grave, where are your stings? Come on, let's go. Get it together. Where are you? So how are we to interpret this? This is a positive statement, negative statement. I think the last word here in this verse, uh, the last phrase, gives us the answer. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. 
or repentance is hidden from me. The sense of the verse seems to be this. God is master over death, over the grave, over Sheol. And this is a promise that the Israelites can rely upon for their destruction. They won't have the compassion of God. I think where we're at in this, in this, in this passage, in this verse, is it's, this is a statement of judgment against the people. I don't, I, I don't see a positive. There are those who would argue that, by the way. I'm just saying that there, that other option is legitimate. You could see this as something positive. I don't see it, though, in context. They will not escape the power of God. They, they cannot. And indeed, they run to a blessingless place. And that's what I want us to consider last, a blessingless place. In verses 15 and 16. And I know this has been like a whirlwind of a passage. And as we go through, right, we don't come away with a lot of positive feelings about the state of the people of Israel. Let's just say ver- chapter 14 turns that on its head. But here we are, we have to deal with the reality. And for some of us, this is the reality. For by and large, the world around us, this is the reality in which they live. So we come to a blessingless place in verses 15 and 16. Though he may flourish among his brothers. Uh, That word brothers there could be the word rushes, um, as in like a plant. Uh, and it makes sense if we see that too, because the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness, the east wind being the wind of destruction, the wind of, of drying out. It come rising from the wilderness, his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. These aren't good things happening to the people. Drought, famine, uh, poverty, Everything bad. Bounty carried off. Samaria shall bear her guilt. Uh, Verse 16. Uh, Samaria being the capital of the northern kingdom. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. We know that Samaria is destroyed. And we get this really terrifying last part, right? This, This sad and tragic last part. This is what war does, by the way. I know that we in our modern culture tend to think that war is kind of this nice gentlemanly affair where we only attack enemy combatants. Uh, Listen, that has not always been the case. And by the way, that's still not the case. Again, we could maybe look at a modern day example in the war in Ukraine for this. But what happens? What does God promise shall happen? They shall fall by the sword. War will come. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. We think of the Titanic, women and children first, get on the lifeboats. And here we might say women and children first, be cut down by the sword, be ripped open, dashed in pieces, broken and shattered on the ground, dead. It's a shocking, horrifying reality of what their sin has set upon them. The people of Israel had had it good. They had received the many blessings of God, right? They've been cared for and delivered into what? A land flowing with milk and honey. And for all their blessings, 
They turned from God. They misidentified the source of their blessings and they created and worshiped things that were not God's. They committed great sin and for this God promises them great judgment and he holds the power of death in his hand. He is omnipotent and sovereign. Well, would the people have done to listen, to hear Hosea, to see what was going on around them, to read the signs of the times and understand, but they would not, they could not. God had given them over to their sin with all its consequence, including his just punishment. And what about you, friend? Consider these things. Think on what God's word says here to you. If you should take the blessings of God, the good things that he gives unto you, and you should say in your pride, well, my strength has got me this. Or if you should take it and attribute it to some other God, what do you think God will do to you? He didn't spare the people he had called by his own name. And instead he has said, you're not my people, and I'm not your God. Do you think you'll escape the holy wrath of God? You cannot. He's more powerful than death. He has more strength than the grave. And he can raise out of the grave dead people. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. Listen to what Paul says has happened in the life of the believers of the Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What does God do? He reminds his people, his church, of the grace which has saved them from the grave. And you, friend, can have life. You can have eternal life. You may be dead in your sins and trespasses now. You may be dead and under the judgment of God, but you can have life. You can glory in the glory of God for all eternity. How? The scripture tells us there by faith, by confessing your sins before God and asking him for forgiveness and faith, trusting that he will forgive you, trusting that he will make you alive as alive as his son Jesus is, who was killed and placed in the grave. <coughs> so turn from your sin and turn to God. In a word, repent. And you may yet know the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. But should you fail to do so, understand that what awaits you is the sure punishment of your sins. God promises Brothers and sisters in Christ, does God's blessings lead you toward deeper faith and worship or greater sin? Don't abuse the kindness of God. Don't cheapen his grace. Heed the warning of the scriptures. Right? Take heed of this passage here, Hosea 13, or what we read in Deuteronomy 8. 
God bought you out of slavery to sin. You shall have no other God before him. You shall know no other God. There is none other who should have the throne of worship in your heart. And instead, consider afresh the grace of God. Consider the kindness of God. Consider all the blessings that are offered to you in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches is what Paul writes to the Ephesians. Immeasurable riches. And you would be satisfied with the tawdry things of this earth? Worship him. Praise him. Sing thanksgiving unto him. Let the grace and mercy of God wash over you and exude from you. Let's pray. O great Father in heaven, you who are exalted in the heavens above, you who are glory, you who are holy, holy, holy. O Father God, give us understanding of your word. Give us understanding of what it means that you have been gracious unto us. Father, for those of us in Christ Jesus, help us to know what it means that you have been good unto us. Father, lead us as we are by the still waters and in the green pastures. Lead our hearts and paths of righteousness for the sake of your name. For, Father, we confess that if we are left to our own devices, we will always abandon you. If we are left to the, the, the sinfulness of our flesh, we will be unfaithful to you. Father, help us, change us, transform us, renew our mind. Do that work which only you can do. And, Father, help us to be faithful to that which you call us unto. And Father, we pray for those who do not know you. Lord, those who are under the condemnation of their sins, those who stand ready to receive the full wrath of your judgment. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon them to open their eyes to see the truth. And Father, help us to be bold and clear to speak unto them the truth. Lord, give us a zeal for the things of Christ. Oh, we pray in the name of our only Lord, our Savior, He who is the Word, He who is exalted, who at every, every knee shall bow before and every tongue confess, to your glory, O oh Father, the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.